welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com. A random fact, did you know that fasting is an age-old remedy that has been around since even before biblical times? In fact, Plato was famous for saying, I fast for greater physical and mental efficiency. And today's guest knows quite a bit about that and pretty much everything else. Abel James is a best-selling author, musician, speaker, and entrepreneur. He's a modern-day renaissance man. He's had one of the um, number one rated health podcasts in more than eight countries. He's a best-selling author. He has an award-winning web series, The Fat-Burning Man, and he's helped millions of people reclaim their health. And he's here to talk to us today specifically about uh, his new book, The Wild Diet, and how it is specifically helpful um, and can be helpful to women, and about fasting and intermittent fasting and what the difference is for women. So Abel, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Katie. Awesome. Well, first, I would love if you could tell us a little bit about your story, because um, I know people to know you now may think that you've always just had perfect, vibrant health. And I know uh, we've talked about your story, so I know that's not the case, but I'd love to hear you tell your journey and especially the part about losing 20 pounds while eating chocolate. (laughs) Yeah, that's the most important part, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I growing up, I was always uh, really active and into sports and uh, you know, had my physique kind of under control. But then uh, after getting into adult life, you know, coming out of college, I was working in consulting in Washington, D.C. And if anyone's seen, uh, you know, House of Cards or any political shows, you kind of know what D.C. people wind up looking like. (laughs) And so, um, you know, as, as a lot of lifestyle factors collided with the fact that for the first time in my life, I had uh, good insurance. So I went to go find uh, basically the best doctor I could because we have a history in my family of uh, thyroid problems and high blood pressure and other things like that. So I figured while I have this good job, while I have this good insurance, let's, uh, you know, try to do everything that we can to preempt any problems that might come up. Uh, And so my, my doctor basically immediately put me on a diet. He said, you know, with your family's history, you should definitely be eating super low calorie, super low fat. Um, and that was the first time that I really started focusing on diet. Uh, I'd been on and off vegetarian vegetarian, and kind of like interested in food for uh, a long time. But this was the first time that someone kind of like slapped my wrist and said, this is the way you need to eat if you want to be healthy. And so, uh, you know, I was eating a lot of um, whole grains and and things that the doctor said, were on the okay list <laughs> that were low fat or low calorie and mostly just tasted like cardboard, um, but that I could easily buy at the Safeway that was just a few blocks away. And over the course of time, you know, I'd go in every like a couple of weeks and my numbers, you know, I'd, I'd pee in a cup and he'd like take my blood and we'd go through everything and uh, my, my numbers kept getting worse. Uh, and so I kept dieting harder and harder. And then all of a sudden, you know, a few uh, years go by and I'm like 23, 24 years old and I'm 20 to 30 pounds overweight and I look like I'm 40 and, you know, I'm feeling sluggish and I'm just, you know, it's, it happens to so many other people too. I kind of just thought that it was uh, genetics or, or something that I was destined to be like, you know, as I, as I grew older. Um, but at one point, it was after my boss actually ragged on me for putting on weight and like being fat uh, that I looked in the mirror and I'm just like, this clearly isn't working. And uh, I've always been really into experimenting on myself and guinea pigging. And so at the same time, 
uh, one of my my older brother actually really got into pumping iron and bodybuilding stuff, and so we had all these like underground bodybuilding textbooks <laughs> from like the '60s and the '70s, and I read up on high fat diets and eating like a lot of really rich foods and clean foods, uh, and you know some of those old bodybuilder guys in the in the '60s that won um, on their low body fat percentage. We're eating things like 36 eggs a day and like chugging heavy cream and, and two gallons of milk a day. I mean, absurd. And so I thought, you know, if, well, <laughs> if there's one way to kind of like take away a lot of variables is changing one diet and doing like almost the opposite thing. So going from low fat to high fat. And, uh, about a month later after I did that, you know, I, the, the fundamentals of my diet were pumping up the good fats, like grass fed butter, uh, whipping cream, coconut oil, avocados, um, things like that, and then ratcheting down the carbs, especially the refined grains and, and uh, even the whole grain, even the whole grains. And uh, after about a month, I dropped twenty pounds, and uh, even more than that, you know, my body showed all this definition, almost like a bodybuilder. And I was so like shocked by how easy and straightforward it was to get away from something I've been trying so hard to do. You know, like dieting is hard and eating food that you don't like is terrible. Um, so this was basically the best thing I ever did and I never really turned back after that. Yeah, that brings up a really interesting point because I've been thinking about this a lot lately and especially um, I get a lot of questions on my site from people who are struggling with hormone imbalances or mm -hmm. trying to lose weight. And I've always thought, you know, we, we always, people who are trying to lose weight, we're looking at, um, you know, different diets and different weight loss plans, but those are geared for people who are heavier and who are having hormonal yeah. problems. Whereas mm -hmm. if you want to look at people who actually have gotten it right, um, look at bodybuilders because certainly, you know, not everything they do is healthy, but they've sure. at least been able to dial in on that. So yeah, what else can we learn from the bodybuilding mentality? And are there any cautions there? Well, I think it's, um, you know, it wasn't just bodybuilding. That was just kind of like an extreme example that kind of like shocked me into trying something completely different. But, you know, to be honest, I've been uh, an athlete for a long time, like a runner, never an elite one, but always, you know, fairly good. And uh, so it was a matter of performance, too. And, and looking at how you fuel your body has a totally different effect on how fast you are, uh, if you're looking at performance type stuff, and also how healthy you are, how often you get sick how good your immune system is. So you really need to be looking at your hormones because that's what uh, your, your physique is all about, is getting your hormones under control. So if you're, um, if you're under eating for a period of time and you're sedentary, um, that's actually not all that much different from running a lot or like doing a lot of endurance stuff and under eating also you start to screw up the same hormones, uh, leptin and ghrelin go all of whack, all out of whack, which are basically the, the hunger and then the satiating hormones. And so what you want to do uh, in order to lose weight is basically get your health under control first. Make sure your body is operating efficiently, using the right fuels, fuels correctly, and everyone kind of runs on their own unique things. Like for, for me, I don't do well with olives. My mom doesn't either for whatever reason. Um, but as opposed to some other people who have trouble with, with milk and dairy, um, I've never really had a problem eating high quality, especially fermented grass fed pastured dairy. And, uh, I have quite a lot of it. So it's, it's all about kind of making sure your body is getting the right nutrients 
um, so that your hormones can do what they're supposed to do, which are, you know, when you're actually hungry and you, when you need nutrients, you start to crave things like kale or green veggies or rich fats, as opposed to, you know, the junk chocolate that a lot of people eat. You, you crave the real stuff that has minerals in it. You know, um, the single origin stuff is just the best. And it's a shame, but there are so many, especially Americans who have never tasted so many of these foods, like people say that they're chocoholics, but most of the chocolate that they eat, you know, the Hershey's and the Reese's and M&M's and stuff like that, they're made mostly of corn and, and corn syrup and <laughs> they don't really have chocolate in them at all. So when you start to revisit how you look at food, um, it can really start affecting your body differently. Absolutely. And that's been a key thing that I found is shifting that focus, like you said, away from deprivation and dieting, because that's a different mindset and a very stressful mindset um, to always be thinking of food as the enemy and just looking at ratios of calories and macros. And because by that logic, you could eat a certain amount of just pure sugar and ice cream and whatever else you wanted every day, as yeah, long as it fit right. within that. And if you look at the people who are those elite fitness professionals or people who are just naturally healthy and fit, they look at food as a fuel. And it's not about yeah. how little can I eat to lose weight. It's about how can I actually consume enough to get enough fuel for these activities that I'm doing. And um, yeah. I actually have a relative who um, she's now in her 50s, but to keep her bones healthy, she started doing more heavy weightlifting and eating um, nice. just a very high protein diet. And she looks yeah. incredible. She looks younger. She's you know, squatting 200 pounds. She's deadlifting 500 pounds. Wow. Just amazing. And Isn't that cool? she talks about how she's like, I can hardly eat enough. Like I have to Mm -hmm. eat all day to consume enough to be able to keep this up. And she's not starving herself. She's eating huge amount of healthy proteins and vegetables. And um, so I always just think that's an important mindset shift that we sometimes miss. And it's so hard in our culture because everything's so about yeah. food being the enemy and about deprivation. Um, and so shifting that focus to just nourishment and how can yeah. I consume enough nourishing foods, which food is, is the best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, the real reason I do this is because we're foodies. You know, we just, we, learn to love it as an art form, the cooking as, as a gift that you can give to the people who you care about in your family. It's, it's so much bigger than, um, what, what most Americans and, and the Western world kind of sees food as, which is this thing that will make them fat if they don't pay attention to it. You know, it's like, no, it's, uh, man, we never took our food for, for granted in past generations, you know, and we don't have to go back that far to start to see a really healthy relationship with food. You know, just a generation or two ago, Victory Gardens were in almost every backyard and people were growing their own greens. And, uh, you know, sometimes they'd cook them to death or whatever, but at least they were giving it a shot as opposed to the freeze-dried freeze nonsense that most of us get um, a lot of times without knowing it when we go to restaurants or eat out. Uh, and certainly when we go to uh the, the grocery store, the things that they put in there shouldn't even be called food. You know, most other countries won't even import it and sell it as food because it's not even close to the standards. Like what, what passes for food in America, unfortunately, is, uh, is something to be afraid of. So that's why it's so important to look at fresh local sources of real food um, where the taste comes from the freshness and the quality of the food as opposed to artificial uh, flavorings and, and preservatives and all this other nonsense that's been blasting our palate, palate for decades now. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, 
that's a perfect segue into um, you have a book coming out and I'd love for you to really delve into what the specifics of it are, but it's called The Wild Diet and you really advocate a lot of these things um, going back to, you know, growing some of our own foods and really incorporating a wide variety of local foods into our diet. So can you talk about what is The Wild Diet specifically and what makes it different? Yeah. So if you if you look at most of the food that's available if we're honest with ourselves, we know that it's not fresh. We, we know that it's freeze-dried and full of industrial crap. So there's this whole industrial side of food, factory farms, you know, straight out of a horror movie. These, these poor birds, uh, you know, turkeys and chickens that never get to use their legs. Same thing with, with cattle and pigs. And they're treated in a, in a way that's totally not humane. They're very sick, so they're pumped full of antibiotics, growth hormones, and they're fattened too quickly. I mean, it, it really even, I go into, um, when I worked as a consultant, I worked with a lot of Fortune 500s. And in the book, I talk about kind of their mentality on where the consumer sits and, and the concerns of health are so low compared to, you know, how important quarterly profits are. So a lot of this, you know, industrial side of things, it can work really well if you're going to build a car. You know, it's high efficiency. Um, there's a high profit margin. They're very interested in that. But when our health is concerned, um, it doesn't work too well because we wind up with really low quality food that is designed inherently to be as addictive as possible. And then the marketing that we're subjected to uh, on top of that is, you know, just driving down a road, you see a hamburger and then you see, you know, chicken nuggets and then you see this, this sweet highly addictive diet drink and then you see something else and so like our willpower it's really tough for us to handle that because it used to be we'd work for our food all day and then you know in the evening we'd have a big meal and it would be uh, a whole pretty much the highlight of the day and now we're dodging food all day and usually sitting in a car or sitting in a chair being sedentary so it's a complete flip of the way that humans are designed to live so contrast that industrialized view of food with these huge monocrops running on, uh, you know, pesticides and petroleum based fertilizers and big tractors to a small local farm that grows a wide variety of foods and has animals, uh, on that farm that use their own waste as fertilizer to grow, um, nutrient rich vegetables and, and fruits. When you get your food fresh and local, it's just better for you and it tastes so much better and and uh unfortunately it's getting easier but it's been really hard in the past few decades to get high quality food in america because the whole food uh supply chain has changed in favor of enormous companies that care more about shareholder profits and and distribution metrics than they do about your health yeah, absolutely. And um, I love that notion that you have of feasting at night and maybe eating less during the day. Um, and this is something I've actually seen recurring in a lot of, um, even my doctor talks a little bit about that. So um, so can oh, cool. you delve into that more? Like what, is, what are the benefits of fasting and feasting and how does that work on a, a practical day-to-day -day level? So we always, um, the, the whole three square meal meals a day um, is really unprecedented when you look at it historically. Um, and when you look at things like breakfast, lunch, and dinner, even when talking to my grandmother about it, it was never like that. Um, on my dad's side, they were dairy, dairy farmers. And so 
a lot of times you would need food to fuel your activity. But uh, on days of, of rest, like Sunday, say, when they would go to church, they really would undereat throughout the whole day. And then at night, their treat and their dinner would be a big um, bowl of popcorn that they put like molasses and milk over, which I don't know. I've never heard of milk on popcorn. <laughs> but, you know, it's just this it's, it's hard to imagine that world because it doesn't exist like that anymore. We're kind of eating all the time. And there are different ways to um, like if there's no doubt that restricting the amount of food that you eat can help you lose weight and that eating more, especially if the wrong things can help you gain weight. So um, in the book, I, I argue that we're not just eating too much, we're eating too often. And so for me, I found that uh, I actually didn't get hungry until my first meal of the day. You know, every once in a while, I'd, um, I wouldn't eat breakfast or I'd just have coffee with some heavy cream in it or something like that. And I'd be like, wow, you know, I, I actually have a lot of energy. And I started doing that more and then playing around with under eating during the day. Um, which also, you know, I'm very active and love going on hikes and stuff like that. And that's usually how it works. Like you'll take some nuts or, or maybe some carrots or, uh, you know, an apple, some fresh fruit out in your pack. And then when you come back home or you come back to base camp, you have this big meal and it's just like the highlight of the day and you feast and you really enjoy dinner and you enjoy the ritual of eating and warm food at the end of the day is just the best. So one of the ways that we kind of keep our food down during the day and keep our energy up is by drinking lots of water, uh, drinking tea and coffee, um, and sometimes nibbling on like raw uncooked food. So it might be a salad or a green smoothie or fruits and veggies, some nuts, something like that. And then we save our big meal and the big preparation of the day. This saves a lot of time too. Uh, for the evening hours. And um, that's actually one thing that if you look at the hormones, your cortisol spikes in the morning. Uh, and that's what actually wakes you up, gets you out of bed. When you eat something like refined carbs in the morning or even whole grains, things like bagels, donuts, cereal, bread, uh, pancakes, that sort of thing as your breakfast, it drives your blood sugar up, which releases a flood of insulin which makes you hungry in the next couple of hours usually because your blood, the insulin brings your blood sugar back down. You kind of get that brain fog. We all know that, that morning crash. And then you need another cup of coffee. You need some more carbs to keep your energy up all day. If you contrast that to under eating during the day, like this whole week actually I'm, I'm recording. It's Friday the last day, but it's been about seven interviews a day. And uh, my first meal every day has been around between like 4 and 6 p.m. Um, and what I'm eating during the day is basically just teas, um, with a little bit of fat. Sometimes I'll have uh, fish oil as a supplement and, uh, occasionally I'll nibble on a little bit of a salad or a green smoothie and that's pretty much it. And it, it's amazing the energy that you start to get when you're letting your system, basically digestion is something that's a, a cost to your system. So during the day, um, if you want a lot of energy in your brain, then you don't want to eat a big heavy meal because that's going to pull a lot of your energy down to digestion. So that's where the kind of cloudy headed after you overdo it at lunch syndrome kicks in. <laughs> yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I've noticed that kind of in my own life as well, that I seem to do better uh, during the day with more just proteins and healthy fats in the morning mm -hmm. and yeah. you know, green vegetables, light lunch. And then 
eating um, a dinner with a family that's obviously bigger because the kids are hungrier and um, and mm-hmm. timing that where it's a few hours before bedtime. So there's time for digestion to happen some. But like you said, when you eat a bigger meal, especially if you're going to have any carbs, having them be healthy sources of carbs and at night, right. um, yeah. that spikes your insulin, like you said, which does uh, also let your body create more melatonin, which you need for sleep, mm-hmm. and reduces your cortisol, which helps you sleep through the night. So I've noticed that's improved my sleep to really focus yeah. on moving healthy carbs tonight and then just keeping my body fueled with protein and healthy fats during the day. That's been one of the best things about this whole way of eating and living is I used to have a really hard time falling asleep before 10, 11, 12. You know, I'd just be staring at the ceiling tiles, counting sheep, whatever I could. But my, my sleep quality was poor. And usually I'd have at least an hour or two uh, where I was just trying to sleep. Um, but when I switched to eating this way, you know, having a big meal at night, I mean, you look forward to it all day and it's so satisfying. And then you're, you're totally right. Like the melatonin kicks in and we're, you know, we fall asleep at like 8.30 or 9 and just pass out all night and then wake up early the next day and have really productive mornings. Um, so it, it's been interesting. Also, we started drinking a lot less, you know, just in terms of our own habits. Sometimes we'd have a, a glass of wine to help us sleep, even though we kind of know that it hurts in a lot of cases. Um, but having that big meal seems to really, um, make that unnecessary. It, it seems to make that, that nighttime thing where you're out of gas and you're tired, but you can't sleep. So you, you know, go surf the internet or you watch TV or you do something else. It, um, we basically get tired before that happens and nothing good happens after nine o'clock anyway. So (laughs) it's good to just pass out instead. Yeah, for sure. And I'm curious, are there any special considerations with fasting of any kind, especially like this type of more intermittent fasting during the day um, for Mm -hmm. women. And I know your wife, Allison, obviously has tons of energy and um, is very much in in shape and fit and healthy as well. But are there any special considerations that she takes with fasting as a female? Yeah, there with females, hormones are even more important than males in a lot of ways, because male males are kind of like Jeeps, you know, (laughs) that's a quote from (laughs) Seinfeld where we're for the most part, pretty predictable and uh, pretty resilient in terms of our own bodies, um, you know, going out and doing a lot of activity without food or really we seem to respond better to stress in a lot of ways, um, torturing our own bodies for for some reason we can get away with it. And if you look back at, you know, where we came from and genetics and uh, what it was like in caveman days, hunter-gatherer times, that kind of makes sense. But with women um, – there are so many more concerns with the hormones because, you know, carrying a child and, and growing on inside you and then lactating and all of the other things that, that women uniquely, their bodies need to um, keep up with, um, pre-menopause, post-menopause, if you're stressing the body too much in other ways, adding another stressor like fasting uh, isn't often that good of an option. So, for example, if you're not sleeping enough or if you're exercising too much, adding something like fasting to the mix is – they call it a hormetic stressor or hormesis where basically you subject the body to a little bit of stress like under eating but still being active and the body can heal itself similar to the way that if you do squats or if you do bicep curls, your muscle will kind of break down and then when it comes back, it will come back stronger and more toned. A similar similar thing happens when when you fast. So if you fast too much or if you go too long without food, it can actually backfire for women 
because it will spike cortisol and then you'll get more hungry than, than usual. You'll store more fat. So you really want to listen to your body and start small. Um, when we first started this, we would skip a meal every once in a while. Um, and we eventually just kind of followed our bodies, tried what worked and, uh, and, and kept doing that. And eventually it got us to, you know, me, I'll usually, and not all days, like some days I will eat three meals, especially if I'm being really active or something like that. Um, but usually that means that I don't eat my first real meal until 3 PM or 6 PM, sometimes noon will be my first one. And, and if that's the case, it'll usually be uh, protein, veggies, and, uh, and usually a bit of fat. But for Allison, she's much more va- variable. It's like she'll tend to get hungry earlier than I do. Say if, if I don't feel like eating until 3 or 6, she'll feel like eating at, at 12 or maybe even 10. Um, and so it's really important to honor that. And if you're feeling stressed and you feel like you need some brain food, or that you're just running on overdrive, or that you didn't sleep that well, you can tell that you're stressed out. It's really important to get some high-quality food in there. So you can never go wrong eating green leafy veggies or a big salad. You know That's something that whenever you're craving it, follow your hunger and eat. But don't go for the pancakes. You know, Don't go for the, for the sandwiches and the subs and the carb-heavy things because that just puts you on this roller coaster that makes you want to keep eating. Yeah, definitely. And I'm glad you brought up stress because uh, I I love that you guys are kind of living off grid right now and traveling the world. And I'm curious, um, what has that taught you guys about turning off and unplugging and stress? And have you noticed any physical changes just from doing that? Absolutely. Those everyone knows the phantom phone vibrations in their pockets or purses or whatever. And uh, what we did actually was was kind of neat. In June, we sold. We lived in Austin for like the past six years. And we sold our house, our cars, pretty much all of our stuff. And actually, a lot of our technology, since we were flying um, international, wouldn't work anyway. So we just basically declared technological bankruptcy on, our, on social media and on email. We put up vacation messages and basically said, you know, we're in Indonesia right now. We don't even have internet, but we'd love to hear from you soon or connect with you later. And the... It's really hard to notice how stressful this culture is, uh, this technologized culture where everyone has several devices that are bleeping and blooping at them all day. Uh, It trains you to be reactive. It trains you to kind of like follow the day around whatever comes up and and address that in these kind of like five to 10 second little chunks um, and never actually get a hold of what you want to do that day, what's important to you, spending quality time with your friends and family. And so unplugging has been one of the best things we've ever done because basically it was like a few weeks of um, being off of email. And then, you know, we came back and looked at it a little bit and I realized that 90% of those emails were just noise and almost all those texts were unnecessary. And a lot of the voicemails were too. And what we, what we really learned to value well, we're, you know, living in the woods or visiting family or just, um, you know, spending time in, in cultures that are totally foreign to us is that being in the present without technology is like one of the best gifts you could ever give to anybody. So when I'm hanging out with my dad, I'm not on my phone, you know, like we're going to dinner, no phones allowed. We kind of, we grew up in the middle of nowhere in New Hampshire where phones didn't work anyway. (laughs) So like that side of my family is kind of used to it. But, um, you know, at the beginning it wasn't easy because 
I had an okay time doing it, but it's the other people in your life who are even more addicted to their technology than you are who are really bummed out when all of a sudden you're not responding to 17 texts a day and you're not responding to every email. But I think we all kind of need a hearty dose of truth which is that there's no way we can ever keep up with all of this. Like there's a new social network every week that we need to, you know, start and then nurture and learn how to use to keep up with everybody. And it's just, it's getting out of hand. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that the, the, the idea of fasting could really be applied to technology just as mm -hmm. much as food. And we'd probably all benefit from that. One of my big things that I always am recommending is especially just turn it off at night and let that be family time yeah. after sunset. Oh, yeah. Don't use the computer. Don't look at your phone. Don't watch TV. If you can help. And if you do wear orange glasses or use only orange light bulbs or just give your yeah. body that time to be away from technology. It's important. You sleep so much better. Um, but you know, it's really neat. I'll just share a story of hanging out with, um, with my brother, Mark, who works on an organic farm and he's been living that lifestyle for a while. He's never really gotten that into, technology and there's such a fascinating thing that happens when you like hang out at this old farmhouse with him and his girlfriend and you don't have tv and you don't have phones uh because you wind up just like playing card games with each other and talking and listening listening to tom waits records and stuff and it's, you feel like you're back in the like 50 years ago but were they happier then were they as stressed as us i i would I would venture a guess that they weren't as stressed as us. It's certainly not in the ways that we're stressed now, which are the unnecessary ones, right? Like we used to be stressed by things like survival or dying from disease. And uh, that's such a secondary concern now that we're, we're stressing about like not getting back to someone who texted us <laughs> two minutes ago. So yeah, fasting from technology, uh, especially with your family at night, like bring back family game night, uh, bring back, one one of my best memories from being a kid um, was <laughs> we got like two and a half channels in New Hampshire. And anytime we wanted to change the channel, my dad would have to climb up on the roof and move the antenna around. We'd be like, oh, no, right there. So one of the channels that we got halfway was channel 13. And every Saturday night, we'd watch Star Trek The Next Generation as a family and make pizza together as a family. And even though pizza is one of the worst foods you can eat from a health perspective. It was one of like the culture of it, you know, all of us getting together, uh, putting our fingers in the dough, laughing, spending quality time. And then, you know, making our own pizzas was a big part of it too. So like being a kid and being allowed to like, you know, put cheese in the crust or like make a double decker pizza and just experiment with food is something that makes you fall in love with it. Even if it's, you know, a stepping stone to eventually eating a big salad. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'd love to transition a little bit. I know there are probably a lot of moms listening who have kids, and I'm curious about this myself as well. You were involved with a book called The Musical Brain, which was also yeah. a bestseller. And I know that um, people may not know this as much about you, but you're a musician as well, and you've actually just recorded an album from what I've heard. Um, but I'd yeah. love for you to talk about that, your research that you've done with music and the brain, and especially for those of us who are moms. How can we mm -hmm. implement this with our children at a young age to help them? Music is a language and it's one that comes, it, it, we don't know why we have music, right? Like it, it's very bizarre how much it's everywhere, but uh, there's no real like evolutionary adaptive reason for it that, that's obvious anyway. But music is something that deeply affects the brain and helps grow certain parts of the brain in a way that almost like no other art or no other thing 
does. Um, it's essential for communication. You know, um, there was a really neat study that I mentioned in my book about when women, uh, when mothers talk to their babies, um, they try to, to, um, emote a bunch of different feelings. So happy, sad, and basically a bunch in between. And so with their voices, they tried to communicate that with words. Um, and they did this for a bunch of different babies at, at different ages. And then they sang those emotions. And uh, by several multiples, the babies could understand the, the emotions from maternal singing, from the singing of mothers, but they couldn't from the words. And I think that's something that really applies a lot to all of us. When you listen to someone speak, um, it really has nothing to do with the words, right? It's more about the, the feeling behind the words. And so when you learn music as, as an art and you start to play it, you learn how to communicate better. And you also, like this is something that's really important to me and this is how I start the book. When I was a, a, a kid and a teenager, I had to go through some really rough things. And uh, one of my best friends, my cousin, died uh, in, a, in a freak car accident and I couldn't get myself to cry even though, you know, he was my best friend and he was, I knew that I needed to have some sort of outlet. And so the only thing that I could do to kind of open that up and, and cope was turn on my amplifier and play guitar as fast and as hard as I could, you know, trying to keep up with crazy people like Jimi Hendrix and Stevie Ray Vaughan. And I would just play until I collapsed literally in, in tears. And then it would just open up all of these emotions and you could deal with them. And then I would write songs about it. And so I, I am very honest about the fact that at many points in my life, music has saved my life. So one of my great passions is getting kids to love it because it's not hard, you know, but most people teach music wrong, which is like, you know, slapping your wrist and saying, you need to practice, you need to practice. And uh, it's more about kind of having we didn't have cable TV growing up or, or all these distractions of technology. What we had was like this dinky little $5 Yamaha keyboard that we got at a yard sale that we'd plunk around on and this little tape recorder that we made radio shows on. And look at me now. I mean, like I'm a musician and a radio show host. And it's so cool to kind of look back at that. And I'm so thankful because we never had much money, but we always had cool little musical toys around. And I think that's, if anything, you don't need to stress out about like, making sure your kids play, just like keep those things around and offer it to them, you know, say like, Hey, that, that little guitar looks like fun. Let's learn a few chords or something. That's fascinating. I was definitely taught more of the slap on the wrist. You need to practice type of way yeah. with piano. And I still, um, like part of me loves piano and loves music, but a part of me just doesn't like to play because that brings back those memories. Are there, yeah, different types of music that are better to like if a child's showing an interest to encourage or different instruments that are better or is it really specific to a child it's so everyone is so unique and i think everyone has a thing you know so for me uh i i always loved the saxophone and that's my you know um in a lot of in a lot of points in my life that's been my main instrument uh, now I play guitar and sing and i do a lot of other things but those were the things that really like appealed to me and then my other brother Mark, he was always a drummer, you know, and he's like a typical drummer, kind of like flighty and, and spastic, but like tons of energy and really good at that. So, you know, he was always banging on pans and I was always plunking on something with a melody. I think that you need to just find whatever 
resonates with your kid because we tried to do piano lessons. I went twice, I think, and I hated it because the teacher, you could tell she never played piano and she didn't like it. She didn't, you know, and that's, that's no way to learn. It's more about like trying to create music, uh, and create sound. And even like having a piano there that your kid can, can, um, put their fingers on and hear a sound come out does something in terms of really good training for them and, and training the brain, especially when kids are really young, they're looking for all sorts of different stimuli. So, um, I wouldn't get your kids started on death metal or anything like that. There, there are a few types of music that are, that are dark and they're obvious. Um, but basically everything else that has a melody, um, getting your kids to sing is so easy. You know, you don't even need to buy an instrument, but um, making an excuse to be a little bit more musical and get involved with music is uh, one of the best gifts you could ever give to yourself and your family. Yeah, it's, I'm really curious to see how this will play out with our kids because we have five, as you know, and my youngest, yeah. when I was pregnant with her, I was on this like Italian opera and like old fashioned opera kick um, and classical music. And cool. to this day, she's almost two. And she can be in the middle of like a full out temper tantrum and I can put on like Andrea Bocelli and she just completely mellows out. Um, Isn't that amazing? We had a piano. It was uh, My husband's grandfather was a maestro and he taught piano and violin for years and his piano was recently passed on to us. And so she's cool. always had it to, to play on. And um, I found it fascinating that she's from the beginning had this intense interest in music. And she also was our earliest talker and our earliest walker. And even yeah. now, she I mean, she's talking full sentences, but she can sing more than she can talk. And she'll sit at the <laughs> piano and just belt it out. And it, I, so I'm really curious to see how that evolves as she grows. I, and I've seen the other end of that, too. People who, you know, with Alzheimer's, I've been with a few of them who have lost the faculty of speech they can't really communicate that way anymore but they can if you sing a song that they knew for example from childhood they can sing and they can they can sing every word and they remember all the melodies it's a there are a lot of really neat youtube videos if you just google something like that it'll come right up but it's it's some of the most beautiful things to see just how it, it's almost like it's coming straight from their heart it, it like it bypasses the brain in all ways but it's a very emotionally rich experience so uh, yeah, it's it's amazing for kids, but it also keeps you alive a lot longer too. This is like a running joke amongst musicians that if you don't die of a drug overdose when you're like 27, then you pretty much live forever. I mean, they'll cart those old guys, like especially the old blues guys uh, down in Austin. They still had a bunch of them. Um, you, they'll cart them out on stage, and you know they've been 400 pounds for for 40 years or whatever, but they're still rocking it on guitar in, in their 80s and 90s and. It's just such a cool thing. It, it does. It keeps you alive. And there are a lot of physiological reasons for that, too. Just the um, I'm a big fan of, of Qigong and Tai Chi and um, movements that kind of calibrate your brain um, with your, your visual uh, part of the brain, basically with the physical. So if you're looking at your hands move or you're putting your fingers down on keys and sounds are coming out, that's really good for keeping yourself sharp and keeping your nervous system in order, especially as if you want to age well. That makes so much sense. And out of curiosity, what is the album you just finished? Is that something we're going to be able to get in stores? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so nuts because, um, my show, my, my podcast, I, without me knowing, a lot of like celebrities started listening to it, and, and one of them was um, some of the guys from the Tim McGraw band. 
And so uh, we got together and started jamming, and it was so much fun. We accidentally recorded an album in Nashville. Um, we didn't really know what we were going to be recording, but came out with like a dozen songs and wrote a few on the spot, and it's, it's so much fun. So it's, uh, I think we're going to call it Swamp Thing, and it should be coming out this spring. But we're going to re- release it like completely independently of record companies and stuff like that because these days it's it's much more fun to be independent and kind of just like let your music speak for itself I think oh for sure well and um to kind of wrap it up I want to respect your time but there's three questions I always ask at the end and the first is um if someone's just starting out and they feel really overwhelmed what would be the three baby steps you would give them to get started there's so much misinformation out there and so it's really hard to know what to do but if there's if there's one thing that basically every health expert agrees about, it's that we should all be eating more green leafy vegetables. Um, so do that every day. It's, it's something that we do almost every meal actually. Uh, so that's, that's the real secret. It's not protein, fat, carbs or anything like that. It's really just getting your veggies in and, uh, and staying away from in any large quantity to start your veggies. This, I'll, I'll make this number two. Stay away from things like refined grains, definitely stay away from sugar, even in the form of fruit and fruit juice, uh, which oftentimes has 50, 100 grams of sugar if you buy it off the shelf. And even if you're making smoothies at home or whatever, using something like berries, which is a tart, low sugar fruit, uh, pretty much all berries are like that, compared to like a pineapple, tropical fruits are, are too sugary to be good for you in any quantity. They're more like toppings. Um, and then number three, be active. You don't have to do a you know huge workout every day. In fact, one of the things that I do, uh, I broke my foot this past summer, and so I couldn't do pretty much any of my exercises. So I had to get really into staying in shape uh, by being balanced and doing the more low impact type stuff, like qigong and like tai chi or or yoga or pilates and and that sort of thing. So what I do is uh, six days a week I exercise for about two to five minutes. That's all. Uh, and so if you can do a two minute exercise that gets your blood pumping or even just a little short jaunt outside, um, that's something don't, don't think that you always have to go to the gym if you want to work out, just do a few push ups, um, do a few air squats, whatever it is, get your blood pumping every day. The morning is the best time to do that. So take two minutes, uh, tomorrow morning and get started. Awesome. And a favorite book or resource besides your own. Oh boy, that's good. Uh, I would, I would have to say all of the recipes on the internet (laughs) (laughs) and here's why, because like basically anything with real food in it, uh, you know, that's, that's gluten-free or grain-free or totally paleo or grass-fed or whatever, you can just open up your phone and Google it and, uh, and it'll spit back, you know, like 10 recipes and most of them are probably pretty good. Uh, so whatever you like like know that that dish can probably be made healthy out of real food so that's yeah use that i mean just there's so many people i don't know what to make today but we have you know the entire world in our pockets so take advantage of that yeah great point and then finally uh what do you wish someone had told you earlier in life (laughs) every kick in the butt is a step forward learning from failure is is one of the best things you can do so uh, planning on it is pretty cool. So it, it, it helps you 
seeing failure as something that you can use to your own advantage later uh, is pretty cool. But it takes some time and some getting used to to see it that way. And it's you need to constantly remind yourself every day that there will be roadblocks. There will be things that go wrong. But you're probably eventually going to be better off for them. Awesome. And Abel, where can people find you online? Uh, best place to find me right now is wilddietbook.com. And we're doing a bunch of giveaways for uh, putting this book out there. And basically the book is like a, uh, we made it to be a cookbook uh, with awesome recipes that's surrounded by a bunch of stories uh, and tidbits from all the, these different food cultures around the world. So if, if you're interested in the book, it's wilddietbook.com. And uh, if you like podcasts and shows and stuff like that, then mine's called Fat Burning Man and uh, I'm not too hard to find. Awesome. And when does your book officially release? April 7th. Awesome. Coming right up. It's crazy. Those bonuses are available, I'm guessing, until it releases so people can get those now? Uh, yes. Actually, we're giving away a drone uh, for HD filming and GoPros and a bunch of cooking gear and my favorite skillet and other fun stuff like that. So, yeah, it's going to be cool. Awesome. I need to go enter that too. Awesome. Able, totally. Thank you so much. Please tell Allison hi and um, thank you I so will. much for taking the time. Thank you, Katie. And thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Wellness Mama podcast, where I provide simple answers for healthier families. If you would like to get my seven simple steps for healthier families guide for free, head on over to wellnessmama.com and enter your email and I'll send it over to you right away. You can also stay in touch on social media, facebook.com forward slash endless wellness, or on Twitter and Instagram at wellnessmama. And I would also really appreciate it if you would take a second and subscribe to this podcast so that you'll be notified of future episodes. And if you've ever benefited from something I've talked about on this podcast, I would be really appreciative if you would leave a rating or review since that's how others are able to find this podcast and so we can help spread the message. Thanks as always for listening and for reading and for being on board with creating a future for our children that's healthier and happier. And until next time, have a healthy week.